Welcome to Season 2 of the Kraken Busters, where we are exploring the great sea monster crisis of 1987. This is Episode 208, The Washington View. I'm Keith Pilly. First, as always, I like to kick things off by responding to listener questions. So, Sydney from Ukiah asks, You mentioned in passing that in the 80s, the Navy was a lot more prepared to fight sea monsters than it had been in the 40s and 50s, like they had new weapons and new tactics. Could you expand on that, please? And, uh, sure, I'd be happy to, and thanks for asking. I'll start with weapons and equipment. And some of this might have come up in passing in previous episodes, but maybe I can make it a little more systematic here. Now, it's not actually quite true to say that the Navy had a bunch of new anti-sea monster equipment in the 80s. Really, for the most part, they had just refined and perfected versions of stuff that had been worked out during the war of the 40s and 50s. If you remember from Season 1, the Navy had a lot of trouble fighting sea monsters for a long time because all of their armaments were designed to fight Japanese ships. So, for instance, ship guns fired armor-piercing shells that weren't really very good at doing much to sea monsters. And planes dropped armor-piercing bombs and torpedoes that wouldn't even be detonated without a metal hull to trigger them, and so on and so on. It was a big mess. Now, later in the war, the Navy worked out flechette shells and bombs, which exploded and released thousands of razor-sharp little darts, uh, which were much better at shredding sea monster flesh. Um, they also developed marine napalm, which floated on the surface and burned really hot to deny the surface of an area of ocean to the creatures. And so, in, in the 80s, all ships carried at least some of these types of ammunition, as well as fragmenting depth charges, which were sort of like underwater flechette rounds. Of course, in the 40s and 50s, another big problem was with training, especially on ships with big guns, you know, battleships, cruisers, etc. The sailors were trained to aim at huge enemy ships a long ways away, not fight point-blank against quick-moving sea creatures. The naval training program addressed this, at least some, so that by the 80s, sailors had been trained in how to use the anti-sea monster ammunition more effectively up close. Not that they always did, but, you know, in theory they knew what was up at least. One tactical innovation in sea monster defense that was new since the 50s was the presence of specially trained and armed marines on every vessel. You might remember from season one that during the war of the 40s and 50s, Sailors were issued big knives to, uh, to use to fight off tentacles or serpents that were gripping the hulls of ships, and it didn't really accomplish much. After the problem of close-up ship defense against sea monsters was handed over to the Marine Corps, though, they responded with characteristic ingenuity and worked up a whole series of weapons and tactics so that every ship had at least a company of Marines on board armed with flamethrowers and combat chainsaws drilled in, you know, as a team, rushing tentacles and working as a team to detach them. These Marines weren't invincible, of course but they were a lot more effective than the knife-wielding sailors in 1950 had been. And here's a little detail you might find interesting. In the late 70s, the Navy, wanting to make sure that sailors and marines got solid training in fighting sea monsters, actually created a practical sea training area in the Gulf of Mexico. For verisimilitude, they worked with a little-known art house movie director, I, I think his name is Spielberg, 
who had made a well-received but little-watched movie about sea monsters a few years previously. Um, you know, his experience making that movie was useful in creating some animatronic creatures who would swing tentacles over the rails of a training frigate moored in a practice area. Uh, you know, and then he made some other ones that would pop up out of the water a little further out for gunnery practice. It was moderately successful, and honestly, sailors loved it. Again, none of this was foolproof, but it was an improvement, and it was a big part of the basis for why the Navy felt a little more prepared in the 80s than they had last time around. So, thanks for the question, Sydney. I appreciate the chance to expound on this stuff, as you can probably tell. And if anyone else has a question, please let me know. I am uh, I'm not hard to track down. And now, let's get back to the main narrative. So last week, Task Force 17 entered the Sea Monster Exclusion Zone south of Iceland, escorting Javier Delgado's Detachment 69 team on board the USS Flag Island on their mission to plant evidence of a Soviet naval disaster to support the cover-up for sea monster resurgence. On the way in, the task force met and fought off a lot of sea monsters, including a shark the size of a warship, which was only chased away when a jet fighter it snatched out of the sky exploded deep in its mouth. The force got to their drop point and planted their evidence, only to be surprised when a mysterious radar powered up just then. This week, let's check back in on what's going on in Washington. At the White House, the Kennedy National Security Team was working around the clock to just try to stay on top of things. There were at least two threads that they needed to follow. First, the progress of the cover-up plan and the Delgado team's implementation of it, which they stayed on top of through regular check-ins, both from standard Navy communications and a special side shunt from General Abernathy of Detachment 69. But of course, the whole point of the cover-up was to buy time for a longer-term, more aggressive response to the sea monster crisis. And as the various pieces of the Delgado mission moved around the board, National Security Advisor Juliana Burke and other members of the defense and intelligence communities worked feverishly to craft the best response here. I was able to speak to Juliana Burke about this, and I'm happy here to be able to quote her at length. Quote, It felt pretty schizophrenic those few days. We'd be in the third hour of conversation about what kind of munitions were loaded on which aircraft carrier and what kind of planes could carry them, and then we'd get a report in from General Abernathy or Admiral Yellen about another giant squid getting peeled off the side of a missile cruiser by Marines with chainsaw poles. I found myself getting jealous of Trumbull and Hendry and all the brain trust from the late 40s. They at least didn't have modern communication equipment blasting updates at them at every 15 minutes, whether or not the information was useful. They had the space to think. We talked a lot in those sessions about Trumbull and Hendry, and they were in town, but they were totally left out of the discussion. Theoretically, this was because of classification issues, but really it was because the president's idiot brother didn't like him. And uh, Keith breaking in here, she is of course talking about Captain Rich Trumbull and Kay Hendry, two of the major architects of the American victory over the sea monster eruption after World War II. You, uh, you can hear a great deal more about them if you go back and re-listen to season one of the Kraken Busters. And of course they did pop up in last week's narrative. You probably know who they are. Just, you know, just me and sure. Okay, anyway, going back to Burke here. On paper, Hendry and Trumbull were the template for how to beat the infestation, but we really quickly saw that their solutions just weren't very useful for us. If you remember, the victory over the sea monsters in 49-52 was a very drawn-out thing. 
They lured the creatures towards explosive barges, and then they blew them up. And that was after the monster population had been decimated by Truman's atomic attacks on the Bay Area. The entire process took years. We didn't have years. President Kennedy had made it very clear that any solution that took more than a few weeks would be a failure. A long solution would mean a panic, and a panic would mean, among other things, a recession and certain electoral defeat for him. And these were not acceptable outcomes, we were told. So we had to find another way. That said, there was one approach from 1949 that was still useful to us. Kay Hendry's insistence that the only thing that mattered about the sea monsters was how to kill them. Not what they were, not where they came from, just how they behaved and how we could use that behavior to get rid of them. We knew from the Flag Island's first mission and from ongoing reports from Task Force 17 that modern weapons were at least a little more effective against the sea creatures than shipboard weapons had been in 1947. The ships out there were able to fight off the attacks, at least. Although we saw that they were moving through ammunition incredibly fast in the process, and the marine casualty rates were alarming. So maybe there was hope that we could just send the entire Atlantic fleet in there, divide the whole sea monster exclusion zone into individual little patches, and just have the Navy exterminate them. We were early enough in the infestation that it looked like maybe this was possible. It's certainly what Admiral Chu, the Navy chief of staff, argued for. All this fear about the Trumbull-Henry war games in the 60s was just defeatism, he said. We'd learned from those war games and from the victory in the 50s, and the Navy had cooked up an operational plan, Operation Treblehook, for just this sort of early detection, limited spread situation, taking into account the latest weapons and ship capabilities. He said we already had a large chunk of the Atlantic fleet on hand, with the rest on the way. And he'd already ordered a convoy of depot ships to head to the rally point off of Greenland, loaded up with anti-creature munitions that had been in storage. He was convinced that if we let the Navy off the leash, they could enact Treblehook and clean it all out. But Chu was pretty much alone in that. Nobody else in the room felt good about going at it that way. For one thing, every single time they had tried just let the Navy off the leash in the 40s, it had been a recipe for disaster. Sure, we were much better armed now and seemed to be catching the infestation at an earlier point, and maybe that was enough to make the difference here, but that maybe was sure carrying a lot of weight. And whatever Chu might say, those Henry Trumbull war games in the 60s had never, ever turned out well. And there were other concerns too, mostly the Russians. If we had a gigantic naval presence in the North Atlantic just unloading their weapons bunkers, and this is after spreading a bald-faced lie about the Russians having a naval accident, well, what are they going to do about it? The chances of it going south just looked too stark. We couldn't completely rule out Treblehook as our approach, because we all saw that if nothing else came up, this was kind of the lowest common denominator. But our goal became to find ways to avoid it, even if we let Chu continue to prepare for it in case we needed to go that route. The presence of the Russians also precluded another Echo of 48 option. General Morrison from the Air Force was really hung up on the fact that we turned the corner in 48 when Truman had gone ahead and dropped the bomb, well actually several bombs, on them. We had bigger, better nukes now, and we were pretty sure the creatures were still pretty geographically concentrated, so why not just repeat Truman's trick? But it didn't take me long to shut that down. And by the way, if I ever sit down and write a memoir, about a third of it is just going to be different stories of me busting ass to stop generals from using nuclear weapons. Because 
Given the way we'd played this so far, there was no conceivable way we could set off any nuclear weapon of any yield in the North Atlantic without the Russians thinking that we were starting World War III and responding in kind. We'd really boxed ourselves in. And anyway, it's important to remember, Truman dropped the bomb on our own territory. This was in international waters and Icelandic waters. Not an option. Kennedy's people had found a xenobiologist at Johns Hopkins named Dana Pizarro, who was as much of an expert on the creatures of the 40s outbreak as anyone was, and she was part of the crisis team that kept meeting. And she was also really fixated on a very specific solution. She was pretty sure that if we dumped a lot of nerve agent into the ocean, it'd kill the creatures, so she wanted to flood the ocean around Iceland with as much powderized nerve gas as we could bust out of storage at Rocky Flats and just kill them all that way, using the currents to disperse it the same way we were right then with the fake Russian accident evidence. And this is another stupid-ass idea that I kept having to tamp down. I didn't think that killing off all the fish in the North Atlantic was a winning play, not to mention the fact that this would just about inevitably wind up killing people in Iceland or pretty much anywhere in Western Europe with a coastline. The president's idiot older brother Jack sat in on a lot of these sessions too, and really thought of himself as an expert because he'd been in the Navy back in the 40s. He was absolutely gung-ho for the nerve agent plan. And whenever I'd point out that it was a terrible idea, he'd always get this patronizing look and shoot back that, yeah, dumping chemical weapons in the ocean would be bad, but to deal with a crisis, you had to be ready for some collateral damage. So I'd just sigh and tell Admiral Chu to go ahead and work on contingency plans for activating treble hook with the assets on hand in the North Atlantic. God, those meetings never ended. End quote. As this phase of the discussion wound down, and I should say here that I'm basing this off of my interviews with Juliana Burke and a couple of books, especially Carl Bernstein's biography of Daniel Inouye and Doris Kearns Goodwin's book about the Kennedy brothers, which um, it's just an absolute fucking barn burner if you're into that sort of thing. Anyway, uh, in all that, Secretary of State Biden raised another concern. What about this mysterious radar signature? Nobody in the fleet had had even the slightest inkling of another ship nearby before that, and they'd all been operating standard marine search radar. This seemed to point to a ship with some stealth capabilities. This was new and unsettling. There had certainly been no indications of a stealth ship program before from the Russians or anyone else. The best guess was that it was the Russians, though. As I mentioned, there was a Soviet counterpart to Detachment 69, believed to be called the Oktyabyarskaya Gvardia, I'm never going to get that remotely gracefully, fulfilling essentially the same roles and performing the same sort of missions. Some freaks teams had reported periodic contact with elements of the Oktyabyarskaya on several missions, uh, but none so far at sea. It seemed quite likely that this supposed stealth boat might be connected to them, although there are a couple of leaps of assumption baked into that. On the other hand, if there was one thing American electronic warfare people knew really well, it was Russian radars, and the consensus was that this had just definitely not been a Russian radar. Whatever the details were, though, Biden argued, it was extremely likely that the Soviets knew about the North Atlantic sea creature resurgence and also knew that the Flag Island had been attacked and fought her way out. And maybe this was a good thing. Maybe we wanted them to know. There'd been a persistent worry that the fleet massing in the North Atlantic might look like a provocative move to them. If they had a ship on hand to let them know what was up, well, that might diffuse tensions. Burke's team moved into a different phase when the word came back from General Abernathy that Delgado's team had succeeded in their evidence planting and that the task force was on its way back to the rally point outside the exclusion zone. 
This meant that it was time to report back to the president to present him with options. When Burke arrived at the Oval Office, though, a new wrinkle had emerged. Burke reports that as she was laying out for Kennedy the different approaches to sea monster extermination that the working group had considered, an urgent call came in from Director of Central Intelligence Hughes in Langley. Burke paused the briefing, and over speakerphone, Hughes informed the room that CNN's headline news channel had just run a brief Talking Heads segment in which commentator Robert Novak had opined repeatedly that, quote, something was going on in the North Atlantic, something that seems pretty fishy to me, or squiddy, if you catch my drift. In other words, the story was getting out. Says Burke, quote, As soon as that call came in from Langley, the character of the meeting changed on a dime. We were supposed to be figuring out what we were going to do with the time that we were gaining from the cover-up. Now that got tossed aside as we talked once again about how to prop up the cover-up. Jesus. We took it for granted that one of the friendly vessels off to the east of the exclusion zone would be finding the evidence pretty soon, so we'd be getting a boost on that front. And indeed, that's the way it shook out, with the British destroyer HMS Exeter finding a couple of floating parts just a few hours later with a tame journalist on board, Charles Thompson of the Times of London. We agreed that Kennedy would address the nation as soon as Thompson went public, and that he'd reiterate the same basic message that I'd given previously, except stating outright that it was a Soviet vessel in the light of the, quote, discovery. The other idea here was that he could push back at the Sea Monsters talk with the prestige of the presidency behind him. As an afterthought, and overriding his idiot brother's continuing enthusiasm for dumping nerve gas into the ocean, he greenlit Operation Treblehook, the plan for the entire Atlantic fleet to assemble under Admiral Yellen and then spread out on a search-and-destroy mission for sea monsters. Although he made it clear that the fleet was just supposed to get ready to execute Treblehook, they weren't supposed to do anything more than gather and prepare until he gave the final word. As we wrapped, Kennedy handed out a couple of specific assignments. DCI Hughes was supposed to exert what influence he could to get friendly ships onto the trail of the evidence as fast as possible. And I was supposed to give a quick briefing about all this to the ranking members of the Senate Intelligence Committee to fulfill our oversight requirements. I can't tell you how much I was not looking forward to that. And then Kennedy wanted to wrap the meeting up quickly because the popular band The Go-Go's were due to arrive at the White House soon. End quote. The discovery of the planted evidence by the Exeter wouldn't happen until close to 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Washington time of May 10th, with the White House immediately announcing an address from the Oval Office for 7 p.m. that evening. In the meantime, Burke had Kennedy's other assignment to take care of. Her staff contacted the offices of the ranking Democratic and Republican members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Colorado's Hunter S. Thompson and Minnesota's David Durenberger, respectively, and arranged for the senators to meet her on Capitol Hill that afternoon. Burke briefed the senators on the covert operation in the North Atlantic to date, and on what the expected next steps would be after the evidence was discovered. She also informed them of the range of options presented to the president, and that he appeared to be drifting towards treble hook, although he hadn't ordered it into effect yet. This briefing was legally required by a series of laws passed after CIA covert action had nearly led to nuclear war during the Japanese Civil War. In the aftermath of that near miss, there had been strong feelings in Congress that specific checks and balances needed to be created and reinforced to keep the legislative branch apprised of the actions of the intelligence agencies, which were of course part of the executive branch. Since these actions were by definition secret and sensitive, the idea had been to reduce the risk of catastrophic leaks by requiring only two senators, one from each party, on the oversight committee to be briefed. 
Durenberger had been on the committee for quite a while and had chaired it previously when Republicans controlled the Senate. Thompson, a maverick rising star in the Democratic Party, had just assumed the chairmanship of the committee a year previously. Now, Burke wouldn't, for obvious reasons, get into the specifics with me about the briefing, but she did say that Durenberger took the news pretty phlegmatically, while Thompson was characteristically theatrical in his disbelief that the administration thought that this operation was a good idea, and subsequent events definitely lend credence to this. And that is where I'm going to end it this week. Join me next week as President Kennedy addresses the nation and a couple of guys meet at a bar in Washington. Thanks, and see you then. Sleep